Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright, coming to you from the late dregs of London summer as we slide properly into autumn. Hi, Carrie. How are you doing? Hi, Octavia. I'm uh, mourning the summer a little bit, but yeah. I'm just back from a, a month in the US where it was properly summer. Not to say that it wasn't properly summer here, but you I know, mean, it was you, hot. Listen, watch your mouth, actually. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean it was it was quite a crap summer here, so I yeah. think it's fair. And I and it was hot and it was sunny and I left on the most brilliant day and returned here and the days are drawing in and and uh, the wind is shaking my bones, so I'm um, feeling a little melancholy. But yeah, trying to celebrate apples and pears. <laughs> I was, are pears autumn fruits? Yeah. Well, oh. there are pears really going for it on the tree in my neighbor's garden so that I mean maybe maybe that's a rogue pear tree but I could imagine. <laughs> yeah I had an apple off a tree in my garden the other day which I don't think has happened before it was very exciting and it was good it wasn't like mealy it was like crunchy that sounds very good how are you <laughs> <laughs> um similarly finding it a bit shocking that summer has passed um but I am really, really determined to find pleasure in autumn this year. Also, I think I'm slightly less miserable because I'm, fingers crossed, all being well, about to go away on Saturday oh, to excellent. Sicily. Yeah, so if if nobody gets COVID in between now and then, one of my partner's friends is getting married, so we're going to a wedding and we're going, going to be away. And I just, after everything that happened this last kind of year and a bit, I just... I really can't wait to be somewhere else. So yeah, I think that's helping me feel less melancholy about autumn because I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I get back, I can feel all those feelings. <laughs> Maybe this is the perfect time to go away because you just extend your summer. Yeah, I did it for the first time a few years ago, pre-COVID, actually for another friend of my partner's who's getting married. His friends love to get married. <laughs> he has a lot of friends who love to get married. In exotic locales. Yeah, so that one was in Greece, would you believe it? And um yeah, it was amazing, and it was a bit of a revelation, actually. You, you come back in, you come back in October. If you go at the end of September, you come back at the beginning of October, and you just have a bit more fuel in the tank. I think for getting through the the transition. Yeah, the the very sad thing about working in publishing is that the Frankfurt Book Fair is always in early October, which means you really can't do much in September. It's yeah. the busiest time of the year, and that always makes me sad because I think in some ways it's the best time to go away. Yeah, because also then if England has a good summer, it's a really beautiful time to be in this godforsaken country. <laughs> okay, well, before we get into it, let's get business out of the way. If you like, you can support us on Patreon by subscribing at patreon.com slash litfriction. You will also get access to an extra minisode each month and have the chance to suggest themes for us. But for now, welcome to Minisode 24, and thanks for tuning in. The format for these minisodes between full shows is, for the next half hour-ish, we'll first have an informal conversation about the topic in hand and anything else that might come up, and then recommend some cultural things that we've enjoyed lately, with the usual musical interludes chosen by Eddie. That's right. So the theme of this minisode is back to school, even though school is really a long way away <laughs> in our past. Um, I hadn't really 
sort of reckoned with how far in the past it was until I was writing this up. And then I thought, wow, it's been a long, long time. But I'd still believe that the imprint of that new start in September runs very deep. And maybe deeper for me because I was in academia for such a long time. I don't know. Do you still feel it in your bones when September comes around? Oh, yeah, very much so. But I also think my my job is actually cyclical like that mm, because true. a lot of people go away in August and then the aforementioned Frankfurt Book Fair happens in October. So September is actually the busiest time of year. So it really has that back to school feeling, sometimes yeah. in quite an unpleasant way, I have to say. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I feel it deeply, deeply, deeply. September is the start of the new year. Yeah. I love how in France they, they have a word, you know, they call it la rentrée. Everyone talks about la rentrée. I love it. And it, it is a kind of cultural phenomenon where everyone gets their new shoes for the autumn and their new stationery. And I really haven't done any of that yet this year, but um, it's there. It's there. It's in the rhythms. And I also think that there is something about autumn that feels like a clearing of the decks, you know, especially after a really hot summer, which obviously we haven't had here this year, but you know, when everything gets really dried up and crispy and shrivelly over summer. And then there's this turning of the leaves that feels like a marker of it's ringing the changes, you know, it's it's a transitional time. Also, this autumn, I feel like my to read pile is not only bigger, and it's, I mean, it's so much bigger than it normally is, but also it's actually, I'm so much more excited about it than I have been for a while. And I think I was thinking it's because actually last autumn, we were in full pandemic mode. And so it was very hard to feel excited about anything. I was really struggling to read. And the way I'm feeling about the pile of books in front of me at the moment is a real marker as well of change. And just that this year, touch wood, so far so good. I have a lot more kind of vim and vigor than this time last year, which feels great. And so we thought this time we would pay homage rather than talking about the books we read over the summer to the big and exciting piles we have waiting for us this autumn. Um, I don't know about how, how do you feel about that, Carrie? Yeah, no, I feel like there are a lot of big hitters coming out this autumn that, but many of which we won't even touch on. It feels like a rich time for fiction, especially, but nonfiction too. It's just a lot, a lot of really exciting books are coming out. Um, I think partially that's actually the publishing schedule because so many books got moved mm. and I have a sense that some things did get delayed from last year until this year, just knowing how things worked with publishers and how people were thinking about their schedules. But it's also just, as you say, you know, I just, I wasn't as focused on or excited about back that back to school feeling in September last year because there was this like foreboding sense of dread that everything was gonna go topsy-turvy again which it which it promptly did how do you balance your optimism with your fatalism that's the big question I've been thinking about that a lot lately because I've been <laughs> feeling very fatalistic like I I think it was being in America like everyone there is like the world is gonna end soon Honestly, it's a very apocalyptic culture right now. Yeah, um, I can and... see why though. There is a lot, I've, I can see how in the States at the moment, you would feel much closer to the apocalypse than we do here. And it's not that we are further away from the apocalypse here. It's just that, you know, England is a more temperate place in terms of kind of um, environmental catastrophe, right? Yeah, four hurricanes came through while I was there. And also wow. there was a tornado warning in Massachusetts, Octavia. <laughs> I had to go down to the basement. But anyway, trying to be optimistic. Should we be optimistic about the books we're looking forward to? I think we can be very optimistic <laughs> about the books we're looking forward to. Optimism only from here on in. No, no, no. Good. I'm teasing. Hit me with your first one, though. 
The first one I am looking forward to reading, which is one I think it's just been published, is Matrix by Lauren Groff, mm-hmm. which I, I a lot of people really loved her first novel, Fates and Furies. I admit I have not read it, but this it was the story of a contemporary marriage um, and sort of told the different perspectives of the husband and wife. This actually sounds a lot more appealing because, first of all, it's such a departure from her last book. And I'm always so interested when writers choose to go in a completely different direction. This novel imagines the life of Marie de France, who was a 12th century English nun and poet. Love Um, a poet nun. One of my favorite (laughs) kinds of poet. The idea of being whisked away to an abbey really appeals to me right now. And especially an abbey where the author is going to be engaging with like intense psychological themes and um, thinking about feminism and women in the 12th century. So yeah. And, and also it's relatively short, which, you know, more and more is the kind of book I'm digging these days. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited about that. It sounds great. It really sounds great. I know what you mean about the abbey. Wouldn't it be wouldn't it be wonderful just to be kind of cocooned somewhere for a bit? Yes. And like have your daily tasks be so circumscribed. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I normally hate that, but mm, I think I would like it. I think I I would like it. I would like to like get up and my purpose would be to like grind some spices, you know? Yeah. Maybe the prayer would be less interesting to me, but. um. (laughs) What have you thought of that as a philosophical, the philosophical part of your day? You know, like Mm. prayer is meditation really, isn't it? Okay. What is, what's your first recommendation? Mine is The Right to Sex by Amya Srinivasan, which Sean Fay recommended on our last show. And I was so pleased to hear her describe it because I pre-ordered it a while ago. And I'm not at all surprised to hear that it lives up to the hype. I'm just, I'm so interested to read her perspective because I read the article. Um, So Amy is a professor of social and political theory at Oxford University, in case you haven't yet listened to the Sean Fay show. And this book is a series of essays that grew out of an essay that she wrote, I think for the LRB a few years ago, about the idea of um, what is a politics and ethics of sex. And this book takes sex as a political phenomenon and examines it in a series of essays and kind of returns to a a sort of feminism that hasn't been very fashionable for a while, but is really interesting to me and brings into that a very kind of rigorous philosophical analysis of things. And I, everything I've read of hers, I am so impressed by because it's, it's that rigor that you get with a really accomplished academic mind that is electrifying to me because it's the side of academia I was never very good at. Yeah, no, I'm really excited about it too. It is on my list and I loved her. I loved the LRB piece. Um, She also wrote a great one about octopuses and the intelligence of octopuses. I haven't read that one yet. (laughs) Yeah, she's a, a really interesting thinker. So that's my first up. What's next for you? Next, I'm very excited about Harlem Shuffle by Colson Whitehead, which is his new novel. 
Listeners will know, or at least engage listeners, that I really loved his last book, The Underground Railroad, which is this kind of fantastical story that imagines what if the Underground Railroad were an actual railroad and and features a young woman who escapes slavery and kind of travels along this railroad throughout America. And it's just so well observed and a really great story, but also a really new, interesting way of examining slavery and also racism more generally in America. Because of course, like these places she goes that kind of purport to be utopias are nothing of the sort, even once she's escaped. The new novel sounds, again, quite different and really fun, really deliciously fun. So it's set in 1960s Harlem. It's about a heist And he has this feel for the rhythm of language and creating a sense of place. And I think that's just going to be perfect for this setup. So I'm really excited to see what he's doing and dive into 1960s Harlem as seen through Colson Whitehead's eyes. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Also, I love a heist narrative. I just love a heist. Love it. I love a heist in film and TV. I guess I don't read as many books that are heisty. But maybe I need to change that. Yeah, I can't think of one I have. That I can't think of any examples now. I definitely haven't read that kind of a book for a while. It's such a great way of organizing a story, isn't it? It's an excellent setup. Yeah. I yeah. think this is it sounds I, I love the pitch of this book. I'm very excited. Also, actually, just the idea of reading a really fun book is very appealing. Yes. I want to read fun short books. <laughs> it's like what's happened to me? <laughs> my brain is like oozing out of my ears slowly. <laughs> I really shouldn't admit these things. Um, How about you? What's your next book? Mine is, I don't know how fun it is. It sounds, it sounds fun in a different way. It's called A Ghost in the Throat by Doreen Negrifa, which I picked up the other day after hearing so, so many people say how brilliant it is. And it sounds formally really fun. I don't know how fun the tone is. I haven't opened it yet. So I don't know what kind of the voice is like, but I love the sound of it. So it weaves together the story of an Irish noblewoman poet in the 1700s who writes this extraordinary poem about her husband's murder, and then a young mother in the present day who encounters this poem and becomes obsessed with finding out the rest of the story. And I love books that do that, that have that kind of meta element of discovery within them of old text and new text. And I think I'm not mistaken in saying that the poet is a real historical figure and the poem is a real poem. It's described as a fluid hybrid of essay and autofiction, which as you know, is kind of catnip for me. Yeah, that sounds like (laughs) a very Octavia book. Yeah. Let's just say. Yeah, I think that's fair to say, but yeah, it sounds, it sounds brilliant and energizing and exciting. So that that's, I think I'm going to take that one to to Sicily with me. I think I'm, I'm not going to take the right to sex on holiday with me. I want to leave that for when I'm sitting in my flat in, in an autumnal London, but a ghost in the throat sounds like a good one to read while I'm away. Yeah, it definitely does. And it sounds so you. Uh, What's your next one? My next one, and please forgive me for this, is... Crossroads by Jonathan Franzen. Oh, Carrie. I'm sorry. I like Jonathan Franzen. And I'm just going to say it. I like him. He has some controversial opinions. Nobody's perfect. But his books are great to read. And this is a big, sweeping family saga. It's actually the first of a planned trilogy set in the Midwest in the 1970s. 
It sounds like something of Return to the Corrections, which is a brilliant family saga. And I'm going to read it. I don't judge you, you know. He's a talented writer. I just um, would rather poke myself in the eyeball with a needle than pick up anything of his now. But... (laughs) I appreciate that. (laughs) I'm teasing. I'm teasing. He is a talented writer. I think I was really bowled over by Freedom which I read when I was pretty impressionable and young. And it was that kind of incredibly confident white male American voice that I was just primed for because I was absorbing all of that culture, you know, because it's so dominant. And I think now that I no longer read those kinds of books very often at all, whenever I go back to that perspective, I find it um, jarring, actually. But it's not that I don't see how skilled it is. It's just not a perspective I find very enriching anymore, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I think I think there's a way, way to read these books that aren't placing them on the cultural pedestal that maybe the media and our culture has and enjoying them and, and also seeing the perspective that they have. Mm. What is your next book? My next book is called Weird Fucks by Lynn Tillman, which uh, is being published by Peninsula Press. And they just sent me a copy. And it is, I think you would really like it, Carrie, because it's very short. (laughs) (laughs) It's a novella in which a young woman has a series of increasingly bizarre sexual encounters. And I opened it the other day and read the first two pages and was instantly gripped. It's one of those books that has uh, the style is like very tight, very deadpan. I think of it, she's American, um, Lynn Tillman, and I think of it as a kind of very American female style of literature. I feel like there's a few kind of writers who we come across like this. Like it's not like Mary Gateskill, but it's not a million miles away from her. Or um, who was it who wrote In the Cut? Suzanne Moore. Suzanne Moore, like <laughs> kind of in that space. But yeah, it's very, very short. And the the weird fucks happen in a series of vignettes. I think a lot of them are in New York, but some of them are in Europe as well. And it just seems very zingy and very tight and very funny, but I think also quite disturbing and um, perfect for picking up in moments in between other things. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And I, I have to say, I am also like you, very into books that I can read in a short space of time at the moment. Yes. And there's no shame in that. (laughs) Another book I really want to read, another really short book, uh, a theme I sense, is Assembly by Natasha Brown. Oh, yeah. Have you read it? No, but I'm very keen to read it as well. It sounds absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it sounds so good. So it was published over the summer and it is really slim. I think maybe it's only even 100 pages long. But the prose sounds incredibly economical and brilliant and sharp. And as far as I can tell, it's a portrait of the hypocrisy of Britain today told through one woman's eyes, taking in classism, racism, the legacy of colonialism, but just really great writing as well. And that sound, it sounds it sounds so good. I can't wait to pick that one up. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people whose view I really respect were bigging it up massively on Twitter, which is always, it, that always gets my attention, you know, when you see a bunch of writers or reviewers who you, who you like being like, this is, this is it. This is real. Same, same yeah. actually. And especially when a book is appreciated by literary people, I really take note, as you say, because it's like, okay, all of these writers and publishers and 
critics that I respect actually like this book. It's not just hype. Yeah, because that's the thing, right? The hype, it, 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 it can initially sometimes be quite hard to piece through the hype, can't it? Yes. Um, <laughs> and I think we've both been a little bit disappointed at times by hype, but yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I'm also incredibly susceptible to it. This is the thing I realize as I get older, I'm, I'm much more easily led than I want to be <laughs> in certain things. And I'm very gullible to hype actually. Oh yeah. Me too. I'm, yeah. well, well, I think it's cause we're both social, right. And we like, yeah, we kind of want to be included in the conversation. That's yeah. how I always think about it. When when everyone's talking about something, I think, oh, okay, I have to read that because I want to talk about it with other people. Yeah. And sometimes it's worth doing that and sometimes it's not. I think it's that. And I think on top of that, it's it's about optimism too. And I like I really love loving things. It's a, I love it. I love to love. <laughs> I just want to love. But like I, lo- I, I like it when things are great. I like it when things live up to the hype. So I kind of, I want everything to do that. And then when it doesn't, it's very disappointing. And then... I wonder if I should be more cynical and then I, you know, cynicism is not, not always the nicest place to be. Um, but yeah, this one seems like it does live up to the hype. So no, keep loving you, you beautiful little love flower. (laughs) Shine on. (laughs) How many metaphors can I use in one sentence? (laughs) Um, what's your last recommendation? My last want to read. My last want to read is another one that I have been like, flipping out with excitement about ever since I first heard of it and it is a memoir please miss a heartbreaking work of staggering penis by Grace Lavery and as soon as I knew that the title dragged Dave Eggers I was sold (laughs) (laughs) and then I heard that it was described by Carmen Maria Machado as the queer memoir you've been waiting for and I was like okay 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 just I want it now um and it's not been published yet and actually I, I know that you're representing Grace, aren't you, in the UK? Yeah, I'm the I'm the co-agent in the UK. So I have read it and it's brilliant and Grace is brilliant. And it's like, I, I can sincerely promise you that it will be like nothing you've read before. Um, Am I going to love it knowing <laughs> me? Well, I don't know. Now I'm scared of overhyping it, but I think you'll love it. Like, I think, I think you can hype it to me. It's very you. It sounds, that's the thing. It sounds so creative and original and funny but also talking about some very important and meaningful things. And I follow Grace on Twitter and she is a brilliant presence online and very smart and clever, funny. I don't know. She just has a persona that I'm incredibly drawn to. So I'm looking forward to spending time in her brain, basically. That's my main drive for reading it. Yeah. Well, you will definitely be in her brain. Um, (laughs) You're like, wow, (laughs) this is a brain. Yeah. (laughs) No, I, I think you'll really like it. I can't wait to hear what you think. Welcome back. I'm Octavia Bright back here with Carrie Plitt to give you some hot cultural recommendations. Carrie, what's up? Your first one. My first one is a movie that I watched on the plane, which is one of my favorite places to watch movies, even though it's a little tiny screen. But I just love the focus Mm. and emotional 
attention that I can give to movies on the plane. And it's something I really look forward to and relish about plane trips, which obviously I haven't been able to do for a long time. So this is a documentary called The Truffle Hunters. It's made by two documentarians named Michael Dweck and Gregory Kershaw. And it's the an executive producer, I think, is, is Luca Guardonino, who was the director of Call Me By Your Name. And it is about the old men, and they really are old, all old men, and their dogs who hunt for truffles in Piedmont in Italy. It is incredibly charming. It is... It's this depiction, a kind of simple depiction of a way of life that still has to be conducted in a very old-fashioned way. I mean, they walk around in the dark so that people don't know their favorite spots with their dogs. Oh, my God. Looking for truffles that go on to be sold for, you know, astonishing sums of money. And I think the filmmakers do a very good, subtle job of, of showing this way of life in contrast with the kind of high stakes world of of truffle dealing and <laughs> you know truffle displays and truffle smelling and truffle eating but honestly really the best thing about this documentary and what i think it is at its heart about is that is these men's relationship to their dogs they love these dogs so much um, <laughs> and, and they have a real connection to them and they they can't hunt the truffles without the dog so actually and I didn't realize this there's a real risk that your dog if your dog is a truffle hunter and you're and you're hunting in a place that is competitive they leave out poison baits for the dogs <gasps> no so dogs get poisoned all the time um no. yeah it's horrible and and these these beautiful dogs who you meet and you hear these these men talk about them. There's a great hunter named Aurelio who has this dog, Birba, and he lives alone. And he kind of says, I don't need to get married because I have Birba. And it's like oh. there's this whole scene when he celebrates Birba's birthday and they're sitting at a table oh. together. And it's just like really wonderful. But wait, who is laying the poison? Tell me Aurelio it's, is not laying poison for other people's dogs. Well... They don't really explain it in the documentary. There's not a lot of like background. So I'd have to look more into it, but I th I do think it's rival hunters. God. So maybe Aurelio is laying traps, but they don't it's a paint dog it in that way. Dog world, Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, it's it's just very charming and it feels it feels like a document of a way of life that is that is truly dying out because these guys are very old you know, they're not really passing on their trade or their secrets to anyone else. So it is literally going to die with them. Wow. And it was just perfect. I, I watched it right before falling asleep and it was perfect for that. So if you want a kind of gentle, fascinating documentary with a lot of dogs, <laughs> watch The Truffle Hunters. That sounds lovely. Also endlessly fascinated by the power of mushrooms in all their different forms. Yes. And I think it was very clever of them to release this documentary now because people are suddenly really obsessed with mushrooms. Have you noticed this? Amongst my no. friends, everyone is so into mushrooms, like collecting mushrooms, doing mushrooms. I think that's just because they're mid-30s, babe. It's like... <laughs> Yeah, lots of people are microdosing, aren't they? I think there's a cultural moment for mushrooms right now because there's that book, Entangled Life, that's doing really well. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I think it's a trend. So The Truffle Hunters is, is on trend very much, and maybe that's why I was so attracted to it. Who knows? It sounds very beautiful, though. And it is fascinating to see those ways of life that are on the way out and to really kind of heave that in. Yeah, definitely. 
I will watch that movie. That sounds great. Honestly, really recommend. What's your first recommendation? I mean, it really couldn't be more different. (laughs) (laughs) So I went to the cinema for the first time since the pandemic, which was wild. And I saw this movie there. And I think, so the film had a big effect on me. I think also the fact that I was in a cinema for the first time in essentially almost two years also had a big effect on me. And these things combined to this like extremely heightened experience. So there's this film called Annette by a director called Leos Carax, who I really, really enjoy his work, but he is a complete, he's bananas and his films are bananas. So it really depends whether you are into that or not. Um, His last one, Actually, I don't think it was his most recent one, but he made a movie called Holy Motors, mm-hmm. which was also deeply surreal and strange. And then the first one of his I saw years ago was called Les Amants de Pont-Neuf. So he makes films in French. This is his first English language film. And it is a musical slash operetta mm-hmm. with a score by Ron Mile and Russell Mile of a band called Sparks, who are known for really experimental, interesting, weird pop and lots of very narrative driven pop. And it stars Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard. And Adam Driver plays this misanthropic bad boy stand up comedian And Marion Cotillard plays a gentle soprano opera star and they're both very famous and they fall in love and they have a baby. And the film is about how their lives change and the phases their relationships go through. I'm not going to give anything more away than that because I think the best way you can see this film is knowing as little about it as possible, actually, because it takes you on such an intense journey. And some of it is very successful. Some of it, I think, really isn't. And I went to see it with my partner who had a very different reaction to me. (laughs) (laughs) But I think this was the thing that I loved so much about it. It is totally original and it was really thrilling to see something that wasn't a simple experience to watch, actually. It really made me realise that a lot of what I've consumed in the pandemic has been brain pacification. And I've been on my sofa um, And I've been watching to escape myself, but I've not really wanted that much. That's very challenging. And this isn't challenging because it's, oh, I suppose some of the subject material is pretty challenging, but it's not like it's violent. Mm, It's a little violent, but it's not like it's scary because it's such artifice. And the whole thing is, you know, there's a lot of meta theatrics happening within the frame and it takes the energy of opera. So it's looking at kind of archetypes and big romantic narratives, but it's, just incredibly daring. And it was really cool to come out of the cinema. I mean, it's very long, probably too long. Um, but it was very cool to come out of the cinema and and be like, okay, this wasn't actually really about whether I liked it or whether I disliked it. Th- those classifications are the least interesting way to experience this. Like, let's get into what it was trying to do and what it failed at and what it succeeded at. Sometimes it's incredibly witty and clever. Sometimes it is unbearably sincere. (laughs) And there was a couple sitting next to us who laughed the whole way through and actually got told to shut up by someone else, which was another amazing reminder of why the cinema can be great. (laughs) Like all these micro interactions between humans who don't know each other. So I hadn't even heard of this, but the fact that there is a musical with Adam Driver, I, know. I, mean, <laughs> I, I will go see that no matter what the subject or the language or the conceit. So, yeah, I am <laughs> literally dying to hear what you think of this. I have I, I actually feel like it's impossible for me to predict whether you will 
how you will respond to it. And I want to know. <laughs> yeah, I really want to know too. I can't wait to watch it. Thank you. Yeah, That's a great amazing. recommendation. It's really, really amazing. Also, just when you go and see it, prepare yourself for the the stylization of the sets and the colors. It's kind of like Almodovar. And I mean, it's very, very different kind of cinema from Almodovar, but there's, um, there are parallels in the way mm. that the stylization of everything within the frame. Um, it's electric. It's a very electric piece of cinema. Yeah. So watch it. Tell me what you think. What is your second recommendation? My second recommendation is a podcast called The Slate Culture Gap Fest, which I may have mentioned before, it's a show I've been listening to for years now, and it's been a huge influence on my own podcasting, as listeners of both shows will probably be able to tell. And I was thinking about it because one of our listeners, Matt, emailed to recommend it, and I realized that I don't think I, I had ever recommended it on, on our minisodes, so I thought I would do it now. It's a weekly podcast that has been running for more than 10 years. The format is very simple. The hosts, Steve, Dana, and Julia, discuss three current cultural things for about 15 minutes each and then give a cultural recommendation at the end. Wait a second. <laughs> I thought that that was all your idea. No, it wasn't. <laughs> um, so it's definitely from a Gen X and white perspective. But I love how seriously they take culture, whether it's a kind of very cerebral art exhibition or the concept of parasocial relationships, which was one of the topics recently. It's just how I personally love to engage with culture. And even if I haven't watched or listened to one of the things they're talking about, and even if I don't plan to, I still love getting their perspective. And I think it's partially because I've been listening to it for so long. So I have a parasocial relationship with them, basically. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I wonder what Dana thinks of like this or like, ooh, Steve isn't going to like that new Taylor Swift album or something <laughs> like that. Um, but it's just, it's a great, it's also a great, I the podcasts I often like best are are actually kind of recap podcasts or discussion podcasts because I love having a space where I can think about cultural things that are happening or that I've consumed. And I think this is my favorite of all of them. And yeah, I, I, I do feel very attached to them. Like Julia is off right now because she had a baby and she just moved to LA and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm feeling really happy for her about the oh. news and hope she's doing okay. And, um, yeah, I've just, it's been a, it's been a very wonderful presence in my life for many years now. So I, I would really recommend it. The Slate Culture Gab Fest. You've told me about it before and I've always meant to listen and I never have, but I will. I really will. It sounds great. And also I love, I love the fact that when a parasocial relationship is a healthy one, they are really important. I have parasocial relationships with a bunch of different podcasters and they bring a lot to my life actually, <laughs> which might sound creepy, but it's true. Yeah. Well, the best podcasts are the podcasts where you feel like you're friends with the podcasters. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, and, and I definitely feel that way with the show. I, I wonder if you'd like it. I'm not, I don't know. I feel like I can't have perspective on it anymore because I've been listening to it for so long, you know? Yeah, I totally get that. I, I feel like that about some of the podcasts I've, I've listened to for a long time. And it's funny when like I listened to, um, my favorite murder for a long time and then suddenly couldn't bear it any longer. And it felt like breaking up with a couple of friends. Yeah. It's so interesting with podcasts that are long running, like which ones you stay with, which ones you break up with, yeah. which ones you take a long break from and then find again. 
you know, it's a whole different kind of relationship with, with media, I think, podcasting. Yeah. What's your last recommendation? It's also a podcast, but it's um, a single episode because I haven't actually listened to more than this one episode. But my friend Ned recommended that I listen to this conversation and it is, I can't stop talking about it. So the podcast is called The Ezra Klein Show from the New York Times. And this is an episode where he interviews Sarah Shulman, who is a writer and activist who has worked in so many different guises. And I'm sure loads of our listeners are familiar with her work. Um, I've not read any of her writing actually beyond journalism, but she's written novels, she's written plays, she has written big nonfiction books, she's also made films, and she's an activist. But one of her core beliefs, and the, the core belief that this conversation is really focused around, is that conflict is not only necessary, but it's actually a really vital part of honest and productive communication. And she's talking about this on a political level, but she's also talking about it on a personal level. And their conversation is so wide ranging, they're both incredibly smart people. But she, I kind of fell a bit in love with her listening because she has such extraordinary control. And I I don't know if I agree with everything she says, but she is the most persuasive speaker I've heard, I think, in years, really. And I I was gripped and I can't wait to listen to it again because it's I was almost so impressed by her oratory that I sort of couldn't tell how much I was just hanging on her every word and how much I was really receiving what she was saying critically. But I agree with this belief that conflict is vital to kind of healthy relationships and to intimacy um, of all kinds. But the the focus of this conversation was a, a, to do with her involvement in ACT UP New York, which was the direct action group that radically changed the way that AIDS activism operated in the 80s and 90s. We um, spoke to an author called David France about this a long time ago, and he mentioned Sarah Shulman at the time. So she recently published a book about her involvement with ACT UP and about its history. It's a kind of an oral history of the group. And in this conversation, she's recapping all of that. But she also, it gets very wide ranging and they end up talking about her thoughts about Israel and Palestine. And Ezra Klein shares some of his perspectives on that as well. And really the thing that stayed with me was her thoughts on what she describes as radical democracy felt so prescient and important to where we are right now. And her her kind of big thing is she advocates for the need for a political group to be able to hold disagreement within its own ranks and to see that that disagreement can be productive and that having um, differing perspectives, as long as they are none of them actually deviating from the overarching common purpose, is really healthy. And that learning how to communicate across those divides can strengthen the kind of purpose of each different perspective for the greater good of the collective and learning how to not see conflict as immediately threatening or and and learning to see that diversity of opinion is like conformity basically isn't realistic and it's also it's not preferable and I think we are living in a time when conformity is what is expected and I think you know lots of people far far cleverer than me have said really important things about the way that social media feeds into that and the way that groupthink has become this kind of very dominant way of moving through and I think we're coming to a time where people are trying to separate from that more and more and this conversation was just quite electrifying actually in my mind for that so yeah I really recommend it so articulate she just she speaks with this focus that is like uh is on fire is all I can say about it yeah no that sounds amazing and I will I will definitely listen to that 
yeah, I'd love to talk to you about it. I think there's so much, there's so much to be said. And actually, a lot of what she talks about made me think about Maggie Nelson's book. And we're talking to Maggie Nelson in the next full show. So some of Sarah Shulman's thoughts will be influencing my questions for Maggie, I think. Cool. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll definitely listen to it before that then. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, we, you might say we at Literary Friction agree with her about conflict. Yeah. Being vital. Love that segue, babe. <laughs> <laughs> we love to conflict. We rarely conflict. But yes, we do. I think conflict is really important. And and learning how to learning how to do it without feeling like the world is ending is vital. Really One vital. Of the great struggles of my life, actually. Oh, I babe. Hate conflict. <laughs> <laughs> You've come a long way. You've come a long, long oh, way. I have a, a long way to go. <laughs> well, with that that is all the time we have for today so thanks to Daphne Carnizas for editing and Eddie Knight for music Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live you can check us out on Twitter and Instagram you can also get in touch with us on email litfriction at gmail.com if you have a spare minute please rate and review us on iTunes it makes a huge difference and helps us reach new listeners it does. Thank you so much. Until then, I'm Octavia Bright with Carrie Plitt, and this is Literary Friction. Bye.